2: Mm. I like our changing world.
1: Piki mai kāke mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ahau. Later on, we'll hear about the chemical element that is the queen of the touchscreen. But first up, we're off to meet fish being put to the test in a swimming flume. The fish are being put through their paces by student Dana Nolte from HZ University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands and Niwa freshwater ecologist Paul Franklin. We met Paul a few weeks ago, putting satellite tags on migrating longfin eels. And the research they're doing relates to another recent Our Changing World story, the streams beneath the streets, when we heard about the fish and the eels that live in and travel through piped underground streams. Now we've come into a noisy room, Paul, with a red light, and we won't stand here very long, but what are we looking at?
0: So what we've got here is a specially made flume that allows us to run water through at set speeds and see how well the fish can actually swim against that.
1: So you've got a little native fish in there?
0: Yes, so there's a little eenanger in there, one of the white bait species. It's just hanging out there at the moment, quietly, while we wait before we start the experiment.
1: You've been running a number of experiments here, Dana?
3: Yes, I have. I've done over 100
1: of these at the moment, so quite a lot. Let's pop next door, because I gather you leave the fish here swimming quietly on their own, and you go and watch them remotely. Yes, Now you flicked the light out as we left the room, Paul, so it's in total darkness?
0: Yes, so we've been running these experiments in darkness and one of the main reasons is just to avoid any extra distractions to the fish that might disturb them.
1: Now tell me, why are you putting fish through these swimming trials?
0: So this arises from some work that we've been doing around fish passage in New Zealand and this um, links back to a lot of our native fish need to migrate between different habitats to complete their life cycle. And lots of the infrastructure that we put into streams and rivers, like culverts and weirs and dams, can obstruct their movements. So what we want to try and do is design those structures in a way that better allows our fish to get past. But to do that, we need to actually understand how well... The fish can actually swim under different conditions how fast they can go what things they avoid what they like so we can help design structures better to get our fish through
1: so what are we looking at Dana?
3: yeah it's currently swimming at a lower velocity it's looking quite comfortable it's kind of swimming around and exploring a bit but as soon as we'll turn the velocity up then it will be more difficult for the fish, and it will tire out quickly.
1: So low velocity. How fast is it?
3: This is 0.2 meters per second for the fish swimming velocity. So the water velocity is actually lower than that. So what's that in kilometers an hour? 0.72 kilometers an hour. And you're going to turn the speed up. I'm going to turn it up to 0.8 meters per second, which
1: is 2. Eighty-eight kilometres an hour. Okay, so that's quite a big increase in speed, particularly yes. when you're quite a little fish.
0: Yes, so at point eight metres per second, that's quite a challenge for these little fish. And the work we're trying to do here is figure out how long a fish can actually swim at a given speed. So at this sort of speed, we wouldn't expect them to be able to swim for very long. Oh, there's some bubbles coming through. So here it goes. As you can see, now the velocity is flying really fast through there and the fish is being able to work really hard and it's swimming pretty hard and eventually it will give up, which it's pretty close to now, so we'll stop that experiment. It's, an, it's Yeah, it's rallied <laughs> and given it another go now, but that's because the velocity slowed down so it, the fish can actually recover. But what you can see is at a really high velocity like that, they can't swim very long. At that speed and so that also means they can't swim very far at that speed so if you can imagine something like a culvert running under a road that might be 20 30 or more meters long if you've got a really high water velocity like that running through it one of these fish has absolutely no chance of ever getting to the other end.
1: Because culverts tend to be long and smooth there's nowhere for a little fish to hide there's no little eddies it can pop off into and have a rest.
0: That's right. The normal way that people design culvers is to get water from A to B as quickly as possible because you're trying to improve drainage and avoid flooding, which is completely understandable. But exactly those conditions are the complete opposite of what our fish need to actually get through somewhere.
1: When you get high water flows like that, that might be after, say, a, a rain event and In suburbia in particular, you get lots of hard surfaces, you get lots of flashy water running off really quickly.
0: Yeah, that would be a good example. But even in some sort of fairly normal conditions, you can get sometimes you have culverts that are really reasonably steep. And when you get a steeper culvert with more water running through, it can actually still get quite high velocities coming through. And it doesn't necessarily have to be through the whole structure as well. We had one example of a culvert here in Hamilton where just the little apron section right at the end of the culvert had a water velocity of over 1.5 metres per second and the fish couldn't get past that sort of about 3 metres at the start but if you put the fish above that they had no problem getting through the rest of the culvert.
1: What kinds of fish have you been putting through this flume, Dana? Currently I've
3: only been putting inanga uh, in the flume, but the plan is to
1: do more in the future. So do you always start your experiments with a slow water speed before you ramp the speed up on them?
0: Yes, that's right. So part of doing these kind of experiments is you need to get the fish feeling comfortable in the test equipment before you really push them hard. So we put them in, give them a bit of time to get used to being in the tank there and then we give them that little bit of flow just to get them used to the conditions before we then start the test and give them their real challenge.
1: If you left them swimming at that low speed could they swim for hours?
0: Yes so Dina has been trying that just recently with a few of them at the very low velocities.
3: I've tested on zero point four metres per second velocity and at that velocity the one that I tested can swim for uh, two hours and 40
1: minutes so that's quite a long time. What's the temperature of the water in there?
0: So at the moment the fish are being tested at 18 degrees uh, but what we're looking to do in the future is actually run some experiments where we test them at different water temperatures. And why? Well out in the wild obviously The water temperatures in our streams can vary quite a lot from quite cool right up to really quite warm in some of our sort of more exposed (coughs) lowland streams. So we want to try and run them under conditions that they would be experiencing out in the wild.
1: And does temperature have an effect
0: on their ability to swim? Based on some of the experiments that have been done with other species overseas, it certainly looks that way, so we are expecting to see differences um, as we run them at different temperatures.
1: So are you finding pretty consistent results, like they are all struggling as soon as you turn the speed up on them?
0: What we find is, I guess just like with humans in a running race, you get quite a lot of variation between individual fish. So some might last next to no time at all, some will last a bit longer. And so that's actually an important part of trying to design your structures is accounting for that difference in how different fish within one species work but also then when you start to take account of multiple different fish species all that have different capabilities that have different swimming styles and so on it makes it quite challenging to actually find a solution that works for everything
1: Can you retrofit culverts to make them more fish-friendly, to somehow slow the water flow down or send it through a series of barriers so it can still serve us a good conduit for the water so the water engineers are happy, but that it makes it more friendly for the fish?
0: Yes, that's certainly what we've been trying to do. So there are a few different um, solutions that are out there that people have been trying to test. The main principle that they're based on is increasing the friction within the culvert to help slow the water down. And so one of the most common things is installing what we call baffles. So the ones that are sort of recommended in the fish passage guidelines that were launched last year look like little rectangular blocks that are all set out in a grid. And that helps to slow down the water velocities and increase the depth a bit in the culvert And it allows the fish to swim up in between those blocks and they can actually rest in behind the blocks as well.
1: Tell me a bit more about these fish passage guidelines.
0: So last year we uh, launched a new national guidance document. For the first time we've actually set out a list of criteria to help people design structures better to allow for fish passage. So it's got information on sort of good practice for designing new structures which is where we really want to start making a difference if we can stop installing more barriers now that would be a good uh, start on helping our fish out but also we've got information in there on how to try and fix some of the existing structures or at least make them slightly less bad for our fish
1: I remember seeing something on social media. It was probably a few months ago and it was a a new culvert under the transmission gully motorway which seemed to fail in being a good fish passage in that it had a a big drop between where the stream came in and where the culvert actually was.
0: Yes, I did see that one. I'm not familiar with the exact details of what was going on there. My understanding is that that may have been consented before the guidelines were launched and so unfortunately we are still dealing with new structures going in that don't meet the guidelines what we're hoping in the long run is that sort of the information in the guidelines will actually be implemented in some of the regional plan rules and so on which gives it a lot more strength when it comes to trying to make people design these structures better for fish
1: Now, we've still got that little fish swimming. Is it back swimming at its low water speed, Dana? I've completely turned off the velocity.
3: So it's just kind of uh, exploring and relaxing a bit.
1: This is Inanga. What other species are you planning to do in here?
0: So we'd like to try uh, quite a range of different species and also different ages of the different fish. So we've so far been doing adult Inanga and um, once we get through to the white bait season, we 'll try and do some of those really small white bait enanger as well, because obviously when they 're coming into fresh water they 're actually encountering these barriers quite close to the sea, so we want to know how they cope under those conditions but we 'd also like to try some of the other white bait species, like banded corkapoo and giant corkapoo we 'd like to go into some of the bullies species. So things like redfin bully and common bully are some of the easier ones to get hold of because it's more difficult to test fish that we can't get lots of. But also um, juvenile eels as well, so elvers, we'd like to test some of those. And over time we'd like to build up the picture of as many of our species as we can.
1: Thanks Paul. That was Paul Franklin from Niwa and we also heard Dana Nolte from HZ University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands. Keta whakaronga mai Kwe ki tō Al ao ki te erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's time for another episode of the Elemental Podcast, celebrating 150 years of the periodic table – Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology is introducing us to all the chemical elements alphabetically and we are up to the queen of the touchscreen, indium. Ah, yes, good old indium, eh? <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. I've never heard of it.
2: <laughs> yes, possibly you're not alone in that one, Alison. You might not have heard of it, but you'll certainly be familiar with it, because we could call indium perhaps the queen of touchscreens. So, if you've got a smartphone or a tablet, there's lots of indium in those, and, yeah, we will learn more about that as this goes on.
1: Ooh, the queen of the touchscreen! I'm liking it already as a chemical element.
2: Tell me more. (laughs) Okay, as usual, the vital statistics. So, chemical symbol IN, atomic number 49, group 13, so it's sort of right in the middle-ish of the periodic table, Gallium is above it, Thallium is below, and to the left and the right are, respectively, cadmium and tin. Now, it was discovered in 1863, and it was named indium uh, from the Latin word indicium, and that means violet or indigo. And the reason that it was called that is uh, due to its discovery, which is quite an interesting little story in itself. So it was actually discovered by a colorblind physics professor whose name was Ferdinand Reich. And he was using a spectroscope, which is a device which allows you to look at the light emitted uh, by atoms as they're heated to very, very high temperature. And they give out all sorts of uh, lovely colours. Now, being colorblind obviously isn't going to be too great when you're trying to look at uh, coloured lines in a spectroscope. He was looking at a sample of zinc sulfide, which is now called sphalerite, and this was obviously impure because it had some indium in it, and uh, so he went to his chemistry colleague, the wonderfully named Hieronymus Richter, uh, and asked him to have a look, he wasn't colorblind, and so Hieronymus was the first person to see a brilliant indigo line that provided the evidence of a new element, and hence where it's got its name from. Both Reich and Richter published a joint paper announcing the discovery, but sadly Richter went all academic, I guess, and sort of laid claim to the discovery on his own. So uh, things were a bit frosty between them from then on.
1: I have to say that sounds a bit rude of Richter. Uh, Indeed. I do like the irony of a colourblind professor trying to find something using colour. That's great. And in passing, I'd just like to say I really think we should reintroduce Hieronymus as a name. (laughs) It's very good. It, It
2: is. It is a great name. Yes, yes.
1: Now, Indium,
2: it's a metal? It is. It is what some people, not myself, mind you, call a post-transition metal. It's not really an official designation. And these are the metals that uh, occur to the right of the transition metals. Okay, And so that basically puts them between the transition metals to their left and the metalloids on their right. So, pure Indian metal has got a fabulous silver luster, and it's very, very soft, so you can actually uh, cut it with a knife. You can sort of imprint your fingernail in it, so it is a very, very soft metal. And interestingly, it's one of the few metals that can wet glass. Hold on, what do you
1: mean by wet glass?
2: (laughs) Well, wetting is the ability of a liquid to maintain contact with a solid surface. And so basically, essentially, it sort of sticks to the solid surface, this arises from intermolecular interactions when the two are brought together. And so this makes it good for a couple of things, certainly mirrors. Okay, So it sticks very, very well to glass, and because it's got that lovely silver luster, it makes excellent mirrors, and it doesn't corrode like silver does. And also gaskets as well. You want something to stick really, really well to a solid surface, and use indium to do that.
1: Silvering mirrors sounds
2: like a very
1: narrow market for something. Does it have any other
2: uses? <laughs> well, really, since its discovery, sort of way back in the 1860s, <laughs> there weren't really any uses. It was a uh, pretty boring metal, I guess. And then World War II came along, and as often happens in times of war, uh, uses are found for things that previously had no use. And they found that uh, very thin films of indium were good at lubricating aircraft engine bearings. So that was pretty much it. And then, all of a sudden, indium hit the big time in the past couple of decades because of the discovery of the semiconductor indium tin oxide, otherwise known as ITO. And when that happened, indium really became absolutely indispensable to our modern-day world. So what's ITO and why is it so important? So ITO is what we call tin-doped indium oxide. It's basically indium oxide with anything up to around about 10% or so by weight of tin in it. And that's what we call doping. And we've talked about that in, in earlier episodes. Uh, if you go over the 10% by weight, you end up with uh, something that doesn't have the wonderful properties uh, that ITO does. And the special properties that ITO has are... Number one, it conducts electricity, and that's kind of thanks to the tin in there. And it's also transparent to visible light. And this allows it to be used in things like, for example, electronic displays. So we think of those as being constructed of individual pixels... And ITO is able to deliver signals to individual pixels because it can conduct electricity, but it doesn't block the light from the other pixels. And that's what makes it so very, very useful uh, in anything that's got a display. So your touchscreens, your mobile phones, your liquid crystal displays, all of those sorts of things.
1: This is brilliant. I've always wondered how my touchscreen on my phone manages to know what I'm pointing at. So, how does it work?
2: <laughs> oh grief. Okay. Um, this is this is more a question of physics and engineering. I'll go and give it a go. Okay. There are two types of touchscreens. So, one's called resistive and the other is capacitive. And smartphones use capacitive touchscreens and they are electrical in nature. Capacitive comes from capacitor and those of you who have done first year physics will know that a capacitor is a device that can store electricity. So look on your smartphone, you've got this lovely tough glass screen. Now the trouble with glass obviously is that it's an insulator and so therefore it doesn't conduct electricity. So in order for the touchscreen to work we've got to have something conductive on the glass. And so what we use is a very, very, very thin transparent layer of... ITO generally, Uh, there are other things used as well, but again, ITO is conductive, and the way that they lay it out is in crisscrossing thin strips, and that forms a grid pattern on the surface of your device, which you actually can't see. (laughs) So, what happens then? So, you touch the ITO layer on the screen, and if you're touching it with anything that can carry an electrical charge, like for example your finger or anything like that. Then what happens is you interrupt the flow of current, and then there's another set of wires running perpendicular to the conductive ones. They sense the disruption. They send the feedback back to the device to let it know whereabouts on the screen you're touching, and that's basically it. ITO touchscreen. So they don't deform. They're not the deforming type of touchscreen, so that allows them to actually sense multiple points of contact. So you can not only use one finger, you can use two or however many you want. And so that's what has given rise over the past, I guess, decade or so to the pinching and swiping and all of that sort of stuff that we are now so familiar with. So that is one form of indium used in uh, touchscreens. So there's a different form of indium that is used in solar panels, and that's a semiconductor copper indium gallium selenide, otherwise known as CIGS.
1: I've been trying to wonder how you'd pronounce those Abbreviation, so ITO for Indian tin oxide, maybe.
2: They always call it ITO, so that much I know. Okay, I won't
1: get that familiar (laughs) with it then. Where do we actually get indium from?
2: Okay, so I talked about the discovery of it when Mr Reich was uh, studying zinc sulfide, or sphalerite, as it was called. So that's where we do get it from now. So it seems to co-occur especially with zinc ores in the presence of sulfur, so sulfitic zinc ores. And it was a reasonably, as I said, boring element before. But now it's so, so very important that the U.S. Department of Energy recently gave it a critical rating in terms of supply depletion. And, in fact, it's estimated that our needs for it, our growing needs for it, in fact, can only be accommodated until 2020, which is next year, folks. I know. But, but all is not lost because apparently the way of the future is flexible screens. So we'll be doing away with these big clunky smartphone type things and we'll have things that you can roll up and put in your pocket because they'll be based on OLEDs and they will be replacing the LCDs that we currently use. And so perhaps India might not be so important in the future.
1: Oh, it's been rather important for a The last few years, though. Hey, my favourite part of the podcast. Tell me something (laughs) interesting about indium.
2: Okay, so this is something I've always wanted to try, but have never been able to lay my hands on enough indium to do it. So (laughs) it's always written in books that the metal emits a high-pitched cry when you bend it. A cry. And I've, in in my head, got an idea of what a cry sounds like. Ah. Um, Exactly. (laughs) And this is not unique to indium. Its neighbour Tin also does this. Uh, If you look on YouTube for Indium Cry, you'll get at very best some sort of crackling, which to me is not a cry. Okay, um... I'm just
1: going to interrupt there for a second because our listeners don't need to go to YouTube. So uh, calling (laughs) Phil in the control room, could you please play the piece of audio? There you go. There's See, that uh, crackling.
2: That is not a cry. Come on.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. Why, why does it make that sound? That's actually tin, by the way, of course, not indium. Why does it make that sound?
2: Oh It's something to do with the crystals rearranging in the solid as you deform it, but I don't think we've got time to go into that, thank goodness.
1: Oh, what a shame. Anyway, <laughs> screaming indium or crackling indium. I'll remember that next time I'm swiping and pinching on my touchscreen. Thanks, indium. And thanks, too, to Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. That was episode 37 from the ongoing podcast series, Elemental. It's available from your favourite podcast provider, and I also post all the episodes on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld Our Changing World. While you're there, why not sign up for our free weekly newsletter? And keep an eye out for the next episode of the Kākāpō Files. By the way, the annual Garden Bird Survey kicks off this weekend and runs for just over a week. It's a good excuse to get into the garden and hang out with your avian neighbours. You'll find a link to the survey on our Facebook page at RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul mārie.